passage this morning will be in Luke, as we have been in the last few weeks. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Children, you guys can go ahead and be dismissed in Children's Church at this time. Luke 11, 1 through 4, the words will also be on the screen behind and above me. The word of the Lord says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated.
that you have. And they said, hey, there's this thing that you have, this connection that you have with God that we don't have. And so they come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. And Jesus, in his goodness, his kindness, doesn't rebuke his disciples for their unbelief or their lack of faith or their lack of power. He simply says, if you want this, you want this intimate relationship with God, then God's given this thing called prayer. And prayer is our connection to God. And he says, this is how you ought to pray. This does not mean that Jesus is saying this is the only way to pray. Jesus is telling us this is the model to our prayer life. We've been walking through literally word for word what Jesus said to his disciples and what he's saying to us and how we are to pray. If you remember, we looked at God as our father, that intimate relationship that God desires to have with mankind. Not this far off God, but this personal God that he wants to be right in our midst to walk with us through all that we go through. We have a heavenly father. Not only is he our heavenly father, but he is the holy one. Can't just dismiss his holiness. Jesus says he is our father, but we got to remember his holiness. And his holiness ought to invoke something in all of us. What Isaiah did when Isaiah came into the presence of God, what John did when he came into the presence of God, they saw the holiness of God, and what did it do to them? It drove them to their face to pay respect to this holy God. And what Isaiah said is what we all must say every day. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Then God restored Isaiah in that moment. We'll see that again this morning in this text. And we looked at God as the king. He's sovereign over all things. When we looked at his kingdom will come, we have a sovereign God, a God that's in control of all things. I wish I could make sense of all that in these moments that we've been experiencing as a church. But we know through God's word that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His way of doing things are not our way of doing things. But we can always come back to the promises of God that they are good. They are good. I don't know how they're good. But they are good. Then we looked. Jared walked us through what it means to be in the will of God. And last week we looked at God being a father that provides all that we need. Maybe not all of our wants, maybe not all of our desires, but we can rest assured that God will provide every single last need that we have because he's a good, good father. But then there's this word that's coupled into this part of that God is a provider. He says it this way. He says, give us this day our daily bread, circle in your Bibles, and. That word and means he not only provides us for our physical needs, but now he's going to provide something that only he can provide, our spiritual needs. And what do we need from God that only God can give to us? He says, and pray this, forgive us of our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Here in this small, small 
four words. Jesus makes four massive assumptions. Four massive assumptions, what he knows to be true about all of us and what he knows to be true about his father. Those four assumptions are this, that we are sinners, that we have a savior, we have a savior that provides a means to salvation, and then our response. So I want to walk us through these four assumptions that Jesus is making. One writer says this about these four words, forgive us of our sins. He says these are the, most, the four most important words that can ever come out of your mouth. Not I love you, not I care about you, but simply these words, forgive us our sins. Those are the four most important words that any human can ever utter. One writer says this about this passage. He says, to err, to sin is human, but to forgive is divine. Forgiveness is an act and the will of God for all of his people. So if he's coming to us, Jesus is coming to us, and he's saying to us, we must ask for forgiveness. The first assumption is this, that all of us are sinners. Now I'm going to Hit us in the stomach first. It's not a comfortable message as I start, but the promise that comes out of this passage will give us promise for hope. But if we say that we believe in the good news of the gospel, if we have the good news of the gospel, it's always coupled with bad news. Because the bad news will lead us to the good news. The bad news about the gospel is this. We are sinners. A great fear for us is this. We just don't believe we're sinners. Or we don't believe we're that bad. Here's what I mean by that. I think it's oftentimes if you're like me. Um, I'm just going to be honest. I speed. Anyone else in the room? And I'm like, it's not that bad until the cop pulls in behind me. And then I get real nervous. My palms start sweating. I grab 10 and 2. And, and I slow down just a little bit. And then I'm relieved when he goes past me because I'm going too slow. If I'm honest. Well, here's what else is true for me, and maybe this has never been true for you. One time in a 24-hour span, I got pulled over three times. The first time I was uh, driving a, a cargo van with a cake in the back. I used to be a cake uh, wedding cake delivery guy. I was late for a reception, and I've done that before, and the, the bride's not that happy when you're late. Because without the cake, you can't do any other festivities. I don't know if you know that. They will wait for that cake to get there. So I look down at my watch, and I'm like, man, I'm 15 minutes late already. So I was going 85 on the highway in a 65. That's not a, that's not a good idea. Get pulled over, get a ticket. Within 12 hours of that, I, I was speeding again and get pulled over. And then I, I think it was about 12, uh, somewhere an hour and a half after that, I got pulled over a third time. You, you know what I didn't change? I still was speeding. I still speed today. Now, I'm not proud of that, but, but if I take that in light of my sin nature, that's what I do in my sin. That's not that bad. It's just speeding. It's just five miles over. Oh, it's just a lie. I, I, it's just stealing this little bit. And so I begin to categorize or put 
amount on my sin. I hope I'm not the only one if we're honest. My great fear is that's what we do. We, we would come and say, we're not that bad. Relatively, we're good people. But no, the word of God says we are sinners. What does it mean to be sinners? Well, first, we must believe that we have sin. This is what Isaiah, I'm going to give you a ton of passages to back up every point this morning. So if you have your pens, you're going to be writing a lot. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. He says this about all of mankind. All means all. You ever want to know what the Greek word or Hebrew word for all means? It means everyone. All. We are all like sheep who have gone astray. We have all turned. Everyone to his own way. So here's what's promising for us this morning. We're all in the same boat. We have all turned away. The psalmist says this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. From my very existence, the psalmist is saying, from the moment of conception, I was a sinful man. I was a sinful woman. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says this. Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sins. Who can say that? It's a rhetorical question. No one can say that. Ecclesiastes 7 20 says this, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and who has never sinned. There's no one that can say that. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, all, they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, 23 says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 says this. And you, all of us, were dead in your trespasses and sins. And when you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Among we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is true of every single one of us. We are all sinners. All of us. The next question is this. What is sin? Not your definition of sin. Not my definition of sin. What is God's definition of sin? Because until we believe in God's definition of sin, we will always minimize and justify our sins. We will always minimize just how great sin is. Here's what's true about sin. It doesn't matter if you've stolen a cookie from the cookie jar or you've murdered someone. We'll see in a moment. Sin is sin and it has severe consequences. And so what is sin? Sin literally means this. It means to miss the mark. So when Jesus says this in this passage, forgive us of our sins, what Jesus literally said was, forgive us of missing the mark. So what is the mark that we've missed? So this is where we've got to believe that there's this mark that God has set for his people 
And when we sin, we miss the mark. There is only one bullseye. You don't get any points for hitting the bale of hay is what Jesus is saying here. So what is the mark? Jesus clearly says it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be what? Perfect. As what? Your heavenly Father is perfect. The mark that God has set for us is perfection. And any of us that don't hit that mark are no longer perfect, therefore we're sinners. Now I'll ask you this question. You do not have to raise your hand. How many of us have missed the mark? The promise is this. If we believe God's word, all of us have missed the mark. I believe the next passage is the most terrifying of all passages in all of Scripture. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 about missing the mark. He says this as he starts one of the greatest books of all the Bible. It's where our rich theology comes from. But he starts his book off, his letter to the Romans, with this verse in the very first few chapters. He says this about missing the mark. The whole world may be held accountable to God for missing the mark. The whole world will be held accountable to a holy God for missing the mark. That ought to terrify all of us in this building because the truth is all of us has missed the mark. Therefore, all of us in this room will be held accountable for missing the mark. We are all sinners that need God's grace. Romans chapter 6 says this, what is that accountability? What is it to mean that we've missed the mark? Well, missing the mark has consequences. Isaiah, I'll get to Romans here in a second, but Isaiah 59 says this about missing the mark. But your iniquities or your sins have made, made separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not even hear you. That's what it means to miss the mark. To miss the mark means now there is separation between you and a holy God. And if there's separation between you and a holy God, me and a holy God, there's consequences of separation. And now Paul says in Romans 6, what is the consequences of our separation from God? Romans 6, 23, you know the passage well. For the wages of sin is death. That is the consequence of all of our sins. At the moment, Adam and Eve in the garden in, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 took that fruit, ate the fruit. There was separation from God. And God had warned them, hey, if you eat of this, you will what? Surely die. Meaning you will be apart from me for all of eternity. That is what's so hor horrible about death. It's a, it, it, if, if we're not in right relationship with God, it's a permanent separation from God for the rest of eternity. It's not just that we die and we're buried in a coffin and buried six feet under. It means if you do not know Jesus, for the rest of your being, all of eternity, you are separated from God. That is what makes hell, hell. Not because of a devil with a pitchfork and it's hot. There's no presence of God in hell. 
And what God is saying through Christ Jesus and through Paul, without forgiveness of your sin, without a, a one that comes and intervenes for you, you will always be, because you are a sinner, separated from God. That ought to terrify us. I'm telling you, it's bad news to begin with. But my ask is this of you, it's of, this of me. Do we believe this to be true about us, that we are all sinners that need a God to restore us? And do we believe that all of us in this building, myself included, has sinned against a holy God? And there's no, um, there's no category of sin. It's not like, ah, it's kind of sin, kind of not. No, sin is sin, and it all has the same consequence. That's the bad news. But if there's bad news, there has to be good news. But my hope this morning is to sober you up with the bad news of the gospel so that you can drink fully of the good news of the gospel. So my, now my hope is now you're sober, now your ears and your hearts have been awakened that, wait, I'm a sinner. So if something doesn't intervene on my behalf, I'm in trouble. I hope this is sobering to you as it has been for me studying. So here's the sobering good news of the gospel. It's going to point us back to this. In the very first words of the text of the prayer, we have a father. If you're a father, there's nothing more painful than separation from your kid. If you're a mother, there's nothing more painful than being separated from your child. Now we get to see the heart of the father. The first assumption is this. We're sinners. But then Jesus says, you go to someone and you ask for forgiveness, which means we have a father that saves us. I hope you're getting sober. I hope now you're beginning to drink in the good news that, hey, there is this God that loves us and wants to spend eternity with us. And he, he's making this assumption that when we come to God, the assumption is that we'll see God's heart, the heart of a father, and the assumption is that God is eager to forgive. God is not withholding forgiveness as something that we have to continue to go after. God is eager to forgive his children because he wants to be in relationship with him. We know that through the text. God never withholds forgiveness from his people. It's freely given to us when we desire to be back in right relationship with God. God desires that for us. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord, the Father, is what? Slow to fulfill his promises, as sons count slowness. The promise is what? That we are, ought to die immediately because of our sins. But the promise from God is that he's going to be slow in delivering that promise. Why is he slow in delivering that promise? But he's patient towards you and me, the sinner. How come he's patient? Not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We have a God, that's our Father, who desires all of us to come to him with repentance, and he's freely going to give us forgiveness. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He, God, who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth, 
God has a desire for all of us to be saved. God is a God that forgives. We have a Savior. He provides salvation. Now what is his means of salvation? If God so freely gives it, he desires for us to be in relationship with him, then there has to be a means because we've missed the mark and we've missed the mark. There has to be a payment, and I've said this over and over, there has to be a payment that's paid on your behalf for your sin. So the means of your, now your salvation through forgiveness comes through what we would say is the gospel, the cross. The cross, that is a reminder of God's love for you, but his great forgiveness to you and his great sacrifice for you. It's what he says, the means of our salvation, the means of our forgiveness. That we have a holy God who cannot look on sinners. Do we realize that? God is holy. He cannot look at you in your sin. He turns away from you. So he had to have a means to be able to look at you and not continue to turn away from you. Remember what Jesus said on the cross when all the sins of the world were absorbed on Jesus. It was the only moment in all of Jesus' life that he said, why have you forsaken me? It's because in that moment, the sins of the world were on Jesus and the holiness of God could no longer look at his son. And he turned away, and so much so that Jesus felt that. God cannot look on us as sinful people. He has to have a means for him to look at us, not for us to look at him, but for him to look on us. And then he said this, the means is going to be my son. This is why John says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That he would die and that his blood would be shed. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake. Catch that in the passage. For our sake, the sinner, for our sake. He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. That in him, Jesus, we might become what? The righteousness of God. It's through Christ and Christ alone that we now have righteousness, that a holy God can look at us, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness that, as John would say later on, has been imputed onto us. The righteousness of God, because of Jesus, has put, been put onto you, so therefore God can look at you, not because of you, but because of the righteousness of his Son that is now on you. Amen? Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found on his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revival in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we, the sinner, might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He's not talking about your physical wounds. He's talking about your spiritual wounds that separate you from God 
And it's by the blood of Christ that you and I have been healed that brings us back into relationship with God. He says this again, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us what? To God. Isaiah says this, surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, submit, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And it's with his wounds that we are healed. So what is our response to the gospel? If we're sinners... We have a holy God that's put out means for us to come back into a relationship with him. Our only response is what we would call confession and repentance. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, what happens? He is faithful and he is just to forgive us for all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see what John says there. There's a means. The means has to be tacked on to our confession and our repentance. You you see, our repentance and our confession is a a direct relationship and a declaration to God that says, I'm a sinner. You're God that provides. You've provided your son for me. Therefore, I confess and I repent of the things that separate me from you. God freely gives it. We've got to ask for it. God freely gives it. We have to ask for it. That's what Jesus is telling us, that we have to continue daily in our asking for forgiveness. That's a reminder to us that we've sinned against the holy God and sinning against the holy God. We come to him and we daily ask, that he forgive us. It's a reminder of who we are. And it's a reminder of what he's done for us. We come to repentance psalm. The psalmist says this in 32 of 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquities. I have said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you will forgive the iniquities of all my sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them, that's confession and repentance, will obtain what? Mercy. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 says this, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The last one says this, in James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. The way that you cleanse your hands, the way that you purify your hearts, is through drawing near to God. So our response is that we acknowledge that we're sinners. That we acknowledge that there's a holy God. That because of our sin, We're separated from God for all of eternity. When we come to believe 
in the God that has provided us all that we need to be back in relationship with him through his son Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And then Jesus says, when you understand who you are, when you understand what you've done, you understand that God is holy and has provided a way through his son, you're forgiven. And now he says, and now this ought to be your response. I wonder if there's not more forgiveness in the church to one another because we don't understand that we're sinners. We don't understand that God has forgiven us through the means of the cross because what does he say right after this text? He says, forgive us of our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You see, a proper response to God's forgiveness is that we would live in forgiveness with one another. Because what we've done to one another pales in comparison to what we've done to God. I wonder if we don't live in a forgiving, a forgiving church. And I don't just mean Palace Chapel. I mean universal. Because we truly don't understand the forgiveness that God has given to us. When we realize what God has done for us and given to us through his son to bring us back into relationship, we will want to forgive one another and live in right relationship. That ought to come easy to us. But it's so hard for us to forgive one another. Which means we've got to backtrack the text. Why is it so hard for, for us to forgive each other in this body? It's either A, we don't believe we're sinners. B, we don't believe in who God is, a holy God. C, we don't believe in this, the, the blood of the Lamb that justifies us to a holy God. Which means we'll never live that out in the church. May we be a church that understands the gospel. And we would pray as Jesus prays, and it would be a daily prayer. Forgive us of our sins. And may we live according to that word. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word. Let us pray in response.